Moncrief on News Talk. Brought to you by Avant Money. Think you're getting the best value from your bank? Think again. Joanna Fortune joins us once again. Good afternoon, Joanna. Good afternoon. Uh, now, first question is this. I'm hoping you can help me address some pretty severe separation anxiety with my 20-month-old daughter. Like most pandemic kids, she spent her whole life with just parents and grandparents, but we've now enrolled her in a daycare centre. We're preparing her with talk of school, friends and teachers and equipped her with language like uh, I miss mama dada. We had a rough translation uh, transition at the beginning of August. Then to make matters worse, the centre had to temporarily unenroll a bunch of kids due to staffing issues. So she went back to her old routine. Now she's back again at school and she's struggling a lot. I get daily texts from her teachers about how she cries all day refuses to eat, cries herself to sleep at times outside of nap time and recently she had zero wet diapers so she's also dehydrated probably from all the crying. Today's text from the teacher said I've never had any kid who just cries like this and requires so much one-to-one attention which our staff just cannot provide so I'm at a loss. This has to be the result of spending her whole life in a pandemic. Never had a babysitter, no more than about six people in a room ever. And was under the very over-involved care of grandparents. We've started uh, looking at in-home care rather than a centre with the idea of having fewer kids and closer attention from the care provider may be a better fit. But we're still months away from the nearest opening. I have no idea how to help my child and hate her to feel so miserable all day long. Is this normal? Do we even know what is normal for kids who've spent their whole lives in a pandemic? And how do I help socialise her while also keeping my God? My job, I should say. Uh, my God, my God was what I was thinking. Uh, um, in part, oh. that text... For a crash to send a text I'm, like that. It's like there's That's so much outrageous. here. There's just, I mean, I just feel so strongly for this parent. It's hard enough to transition your child into group care, into, mm. you know, third party care and especially apply the pandemic lens to parents who had babies in the pandemic because yeah. parenting in the pandemic, especially with a newborn, no, no matter if it was your first newborn or your third, it was really, really hard because you didn't have people who were able to drop in and hold baby while you grabbed a shower, a nap or yeah. a sandwich. Yeah. You know, you didn't have that. And it was that intense experience. So this is just, oh my goodness. And look at when it comes to transitioning into childcare, early years, education, whatever it might be, you know, be they babies going in or time toddlers, some children will settle happily within days or maybe even a few weeks, okay, and then they adjust. And others will get upset and cry even after a few weeks. And you're talking it going into months, not weeks at that stage. And other people will find, well, initially my child settled, you know, a bit of a honeymoon phase. It was Mm. all a bit new and exciting. And then they began to protest. So children will respond very differently to the same experience. But generally speaking, most eventually settle. Now, eventually is the key word here, because what do we really understand by that? When that eventual settling happens, it tends to be as a result of a collaborative approach between parents and the adult caregivers, early years educators, again, depending on Mm. the setting you're in. So it really depends on that. And that's where that text really kind of jumped out at me that it's not helpful. It may be true, but it's not helpful. And I'm wondering what what does it achieve? What was the intent behind it? Is it, gosh, we don't know what to do. Can you help us? Or was yeah, it? Yeah, it sounds like we don't like this out? one. Yeah. Or, you know, it's open gosh. to inference, which is why it's unhelpful. Because if if somebody sent that and they were like, oh, I didn't mean it like that. Be clear about what you did mean. So I think looking for a meeting with the 
with the staff to explore what their plan is. There's no way, like I know they're saying we've never had a child cry like this, but they've had plenty of children. I guarantee it's struggle to settle in because this mm. struggling to settle isn't unusual. Add to that that in part there's shared responsibility here because she had already done a rough start at August. Then there was a break mm. that was not the family's choosing and now it's back to the beginning of that. So there's the stop start is quite significant as well and basically she needs more time. It's almost like you're starting from scratch again and a gradual build up of hours might be one such approach but again I don't want to speak for the, the service provider. They may have look this is what we typically do when children are struggling. This is how we find it works. Um and look at the socialisation question. We've had that come up before. And at her age, her important hub of social emotional development is parents, siblings, grandparents, family, basically. Mm, yeah. So you don't need to worry about socialising her with other children. Children will socialise. They develop in different play stages in relation to other children. And, you know, they go through that phase where they are playing with other children but they're not really they're playing parallel <laughs> yeah. alongside them I'm doing my own thing and mm. I quite like what you're doing I'll take it from you rather than try to play <laughs> with you so you know that's a whole natural process I wouldn't worry about she needs to socialise because she is socialising with you you are enough for her but all of that said, what I am going to say is that with the best will in the world and trying everything that you have tried are trying might try all children are not suited to large group care. And sometimes in spite of your very best efforts and their very best efforts and everybody's very best efforts, the care setting just isn't right for your child. So I'm, I'm encouraged, you're already a step ahead, really. You're exploring alternative options with in-home care, smaller groups. I can hear, you know, this isn't working mm. and you're looking at that. But it's so stressful to think of your little one crying to this extent, like she's really working herself up into a frenzy that to the point of dehydration and falling asleep out of sheer physical exhaustion Gosh. from crying. So what I would say to you while you're working all of this out is when you're back with her, lots and lots of holding, swaying, singing, toes and nose her every day and maybe communicate with the staff if they could do that. And toes and nosing a baby is something you can do when you're changing a nappy or just when you're playing with them. You know, you bring your nose to their nose and rub it side to side. You count their little piggy toes. You this little piggy went to market them. You do whatever it is to play with their little toes mm. and nose because it's a way of playing. And if you're doing that at home and they're doing that in the care facility, that's quite nice and nice, consistent care. Consistency is key. So try to have a predictable, consistent, but brief drop off routine. Sing a song and through repetition, she knows when the song ends, you're going. So you don't have to say, I'm going now, because actually when the song ends, you always go. Do five kisses, kiss her forehead, her nose, her chin, both cheeks, you know, that you're doing a little ritual of the kisses and have a little special phrase. You know, when I don't see you with my eyes, I feel you in my heart and see you later. You know, yeah. have a little routine that is cueing her. You're going, you're going. Never leave without saying goodbye. I know some people do say just run when the going is good. She'll look up, she'll realise you're gone and can get very upset again. Yeah. I, I think saying goodbye, marking the point of separation is really, really important for parents as well as children. But I think I think you're exploring other options is absolutely what I would do in this situation. But don't rule out where you are at the moment. Explore what again, have that meeting, explore what they typically do and maybe reflect that a text like that is not helpful because it really puts you in a situation. What can you do? 
Yeah. And you're receiving I, that I, and you're finding it so what, distressing it, it, it and so upsetting. It distresses everybody. It yeah. tells the parents your, your child is distressed and it tell, also tells the parent we can't cope with that's, this. And that's which the you're re- kind of paying the money for. But that's yeah. the bit that's so worrying for yeah. a parent is that you hope against hope when I go she'll settle and they'll hold her and they'll mind her and they'll co-regulate her and she'll be okay. <laughs> they mm. can deal with this. And getting that text just says no we can't. And actually putting it on the child. We've never had a child like this. That puts the responsibility on the child and that's not okay at 20 months. Yeah, because you imagine that you know, one of the jobs of a creation is to calm anxious parents as well, especially. Oh, I, and start. I mean, that is not an easy yeah. job. You not know? an easy job. So but, you know. it's a highly skilled area of work. So that's why I'm just surprised at that piece. Yeah, very much so. Yeah. My seven year old son is hardly ever not sucking his thumb. He has been through a lot of upheaval in the past two years or so, as I have separated from his father. But I'm worried he's becoming too reliant on his thumb sucking. He's at it constantly and I don't know how to approach it. How do I help him break the habit or should I let him grow out of it naturally? Oh, I mean, I just think, first of all, isn't he a very smart little boy that, you know, in the last two years, he's worked out a way to self-soothe. Things were feeling really unsettled, really dysregulated, and he found a way that helped him to manage that and to feel okay. So I think, first of all, kudos to him. Things were, in your own words, you know, things were difficult, a lot of upheaval. And that's a lot for him. Put that as a percentage of his life. That's significant time period. So when it's a bit like sometimes, I'm not saying it's this parent, but sometimes when something big has happened in a family and we're all unsettled and it has, you know, the upheaval is shared. But then the thing, whatever it is, ends passes and we think well we're over it now we're past it yeah but that doesn't always apply to children and I'm wondering has he ever had a process or a space that enabled him to work through all of that upheaval that impact of the separation how he understood it or didn't how he experienced it has he had anything like you know there's the the rainbows organization rainbows groups often run in communities or within school settings some play therapy something that was for him to give him an alternative way of processing this so he doesn't need to suck his thumb. So rather Mm. than looking at the overt behaviour, just stop sucking your thumb. Look at what's underpinning that behaviour, his physical and emotional state and go there so that the need to suck the thumb lessens rather than you trying to take it away because then it becomes a battle. Yeah. When actually it's what function is it serving for him. So and I mean, I get it because the risks with thumb sucking are, you know, first of all, the clean or not clean hands. You know, before they stick them in their mouth. I totally get that. And also at his age, there's dental concerns. Yeah, I, I yeah. you know, I do get why you're like, oh, well, please don't do that. But I also think you could learn from him how it helps him. You could say to him, look, you do this. And I'm curious about it. How does it feel when you do it? How are you feeling before you do it? And if he's like, I don't know, but you're bringing his attention to that. You're beginning to help him understand as well. Well, when I get a bit worried or when I'm getting a bit tired or when I just need to power down, that's when I do it. Oh, I think we could find something else for you to do. Let's try. And it could be a fidget toy. You know, one of those popper things that are everywhere. You know, there's always some kind of new fidgety. There's a new spinner variant variant on on that. Exactly. So, you know, something like that that can occupy and distract him. But again, attend to the fact that he needs that distraction. And what is he seeking to distract himself from? So I would consider if he hasn't had it, a little bit of, you know, be it a rainbows group, ask your school about that or within your community centre, in your locality, or if play therapy is available either again via the school within your local area or if it's something you can source yourself, go through your GP or somebody who could recommend that to you. um, I think I would do that for him. Yeah. 
I can remember being about his age mm. and how difficult it was to suck, uh, stop sucking my thumb. Because and, it's a habit. It was a, it was a total habit mm-hmm. to the extent, and my parents, you know, it was back in the day where, you know, they thought a belt in the head was good, was good parenting. <laughs> good distraction. Uh, but, uh, but they were at me constantly mm. to stop uh, sucking my thumb to the point where I started lying about it and saying, yeah. I have stopped sucking my thumb, but they always knew. And you developed and a strategy to hide it and no, conceal I, it. No, I was stupid. I, I just couldn't, <laughs> I just couldn't figure out how they didn't know, how they knew. And of course, eventually my mother told me years later it was the only clean finger I had. <laughs> <laughs> But, you know, you don't want a child having to lie or conceal or develop other behaviours that you don't want to see, by the way. And I just think avoid the shame or blame thing with children. Like, don't shame him for doing it. Be curious about Mm. what function it's serving. Yeah. You are listening to The Moncrief (laughs) Show on News Talk. We have to take a break after that. How do you establish a blended family? 53106 is our text number that will cost you uh, 30 cents you're on fortune uh, is still with us we were talking about a young fella uh, who's still sucking his thumb he's seven uh, Steve says my 48 year old wife still sucks her thumb any help for me but she's probably not doing herself any harm I suck my thumb till I was 14 mm. I literally weaned myself on it and onto cigarettes, uh, says Tom. Not a, not a, not a strategy we're advising. Uh, DJ says, I sucked my thumb when I was uh, young. So my mom introduced me to a friend of hers who lost his thumb and finger in an accident when he was a kid. They told me it was because he sucked oh, them. God. It worked. I instantly stopped sucking my thumb out of fear of losing it. Oh, my gosh. I'm not going to endorse that one either. Yeah, no. Jane says, this is true. I'm 69. Sucked my thumb constantly from birth to about the age of 20. I even occasionally still do it if I'm really stressed. So there, my teeth are straight and fine. Yeah. Uh, well, I think a lot of adults do it occasionally. Absolutely. And, there's no, you know, and especially when you mention occasionally, because it's often when we're aroused by, you know, stress or worry or something else is going on. And again, it's like I said at the start, this little boy found what works for him. It's a way yeah. of self-soothing and self-regulating. Yeah. Ah, Jane, that's kind of cute. Uh, you're 69, occasionally you're sitting there listening to us <laughs> sucking your thumb. Now, I've gotten into quite a serious relationship with my partner and I'm wondering how we approach trying to start blending our families. I'm the mother of two boys and he's got two girls and a boy. They're a mix of ages. The youngest is eight and the eldest is 14. They're quite familiar with each other, but more in a friendly rather than family context. I don't want to fall into the mean stepmother trope, but I want to strike a balance of firm but approachable with my partner's kids. Yet we were also not officially engaged or anything, so I feel like his children don't have that kind of authoritative respect for me yet. What would you suggest I do? Oh, I mean, there's a lot simmering here about discipline, though, isn't there? It's about authoritative and what can I say and not say? And are they supposed to take their behavioural cues from me? Can I be the adult in charge with children that are not mine within the context of the relationship? So I'm wondering, are they living together Um, or is this where you're there sometimes? And again, I was also wondering um, how many of the children are with you all week? All of them, maybe some of them. How does that work? Because that's a different rhythm to blending a family. You know, I'm guessing they're not living. Because when she's, they're not living with each other when she says they're just familiar with each other. That's what I was yeah. thinking as well. So, you know, you have to be really careful about overstepping a boundary if you're not living there, if 
you're not seeing them all the time, but some of the time. So there are certainly, I'm not saying do nothing, but just kind of walk that line because, you know, the evil stepmother thing is something of a bugbear for me as well. But, you know, but that's, you know, thanks, Disney, you know, for the good old evil stepmothers and all of that. But I do think that, look, if you take the concept of blended family, you know, there can be pro-social benefits because being part of a blended family teaches children that there is, you know, more than blood connections. You know, family is made up of more than that. And the positives can include then that your family unit is growing, extending, and there are more people who love and care about you. So it's about approaching it from you're gaining me to mm. love and care about you, not you're gaining someone else to point out the things you're doing wrong and to be allowed to give out to you. Yeah. You know, so I and of course, there's going to be challenges. I'm not saying therefore it's lovely and everybody's delighted <laughs> with it. it. Of course, there are challenges and complexities. And the key is that you're naming it now. And the important thing is you name that to your partner and you both agree what is the lines of communication, the boundaries. I think, you know, because when you're blending a family, each member has to relearn their roles. You know, where do I fit in the family yeah, pecking yeah, order now? Yeah. The, even the age order can be displaced from I've gone from being the eldest to the middle child, you know, things like that. I have to be able to negotiate lines of communication, expectations, and especially in terms of the boundaries of what is expected of you in your role. And as the child in this, what am I supposed to expect of you and what are you expecting of me? What do I call you? Am I supposed to ask you permission for things or do I not ask you? How does that all work? And again, between the adults involved, what is accepted in terms of your role by these children's other parent, by your partner? Yeah. You know, in, and also being aware of things like what kind of a discipline life are they used to? Like, what is the typical discipline strategies that their parents use? And are they in line with yours? Because you can't just impose yours in terms of, you know, for example, if you're blending a family and all of a sudden religion is part of the equation and it never was before in your family or whatever it might be about education or anything like that, whatever belief system, all of that takes negotiation. Now, the ideal, of course, in my ideal world is that everybody co-parents in an open cooperative, collaborative, cohesive way. Um, But the key is respect. You might disagree with each other. You might be Mm. uncomfortable with your partner's new partner, your ex-partner's new partner being actively involved with your children. But whatever whatever you're sitting on with that, delivering your opinion in a respectful way. So I think what you're asking about is drawing lines of respect, what is and isn't acceptable in terms of how do we talk to each other? How do we treat each other? Who are the adults in charge and what does that look and sound like? That has to start with the adults having that conversation before you brief the children. And it might be, look, so-and-so is going to move in. We're all going to be seeing a lot more of each other. We'll be waking up in the same house and going to sleep in the same house. And that means there are different rules coming in and Mm. here's how it's going to look and feel. But don't make it negative. You know, think about, you know, in this family, we respect each other. We listen to each other. We work together. We were if we have a problem, we sit and we work it out that you make positive statements, have fun family activities. If you're all together, maybe two or three days a week, make sure you're doing something fun and structured in that space of time. Because what you don't want is to make this blending focused on and here's the list of things the way it's going to go now. Because immediately children will be like, no thanks. But if you approach it in, look, you're gaining something and of course we're going to respect each other. I'll respect you. You respect me. But on the big issues, make sure that you've got agreed positioning between you and your new partner about what is he or she okay with in terms of how the children will be Mm -hmm. raised, spoken to, disciplined, etc. 
none of the kids were asked for this though that's always the difficulty that you're Absolutely. going we're a blended family and here and here the way we're going to do things and all and the five children are going he's not my dad she's not my mother and that's true though isn't yeah. it like it's important you name that so they don't have to yeah you know that yeah. you take responsibility and say you know we've made an adult decision that we're going to live together and of course that affects you all so we're going to talk about that I'm not trying to be your mum or dad because you've already got one mm. but what I am is another person who really loves and cares about you and wants the best for you and while we live together this is how, what we'll agree is to be really respectful. If I say something that you think has crossed a line or upset you, please come to me with that because I'm available and open to talk to you about that. I won't be hurt or offended. I want us to be able to learn how, we, how each other work and mm. it's going to take us time and sometimes I'll get it right and sometimes I'm going to get it wrong. And you name that from mm. the outset. So it's a child, especially 14. I don't know which one has the 14 year old. He but has a 14 year old. You know, I think, so yeah. that they can say, hey, that's not OK. You know, my mom or dad wouldn't say that. That's not the rules I grow. I, I've grown up with. So why do I have to do it here? And maybe it's about in this family. This is how we're doing it. And I'm sorry, that's difficult for you. Let's try and negotiate and meet somewhere in the middle. Yeah. Should there also be, to a degree, expectation setting? I mean, I mean, for the respective parents in this, in that. You know, the, the, the parents of uh, the kids of the other partner may never regard you as a uh, even in a, as a parental person, just a person that my dad's with or a person my mum's with. And, uh, but you're still an adult in their life. Yeah, sure. There's yeah. a caregiving role mm. and that you've been, you're important in their parents life. So that's where you start from. You don't start from, hey, I'm your new parent, yes. because actually that's a privilege and that's something that you have to work up to. And that's a trust based relationship. And that has to be negotiated through clear communication. And there's going to be bumps in the road on this and ups and downs. And maybe some of the you know, way you might discipline or consequence or speak to your own children and they'll be saying, hey, how come those that lot aren't getting in trouble the mm. way we are? And how come? so you do want to find a kind of balance within you because part of blending a family is that you don't just push a bunch of people together into a new house and say, et voila, we're now a family. You actually have to blend lots of things, blending how you speak, blending your belief system. There's, it's multi-layered. Mm, so yeah. don't rush it. Talk and think it through together so that at least as the adults in the equation, you're coming at this with a plan and be prepared for the question you didn't anticipate and say, actually, you've got us on that one. We hadn't thought about that. Let me come back to you on it. Yeah. There is a book called Step Monster. I forget the name of the woman who wrote it. An American woman, which apparently is very good uh, okay. about this, which is, um, and she doesn't like hold back her punches either. Like <laughs> she's not like, you know, oh, everything's wonderful in my in my blended family. And it won't be. Uh, she's talking about being a stepmother. They are not even married. Well, I suppose they're obviously adjacent to that position at the moment. Uh, as a girlfriend, she does not have the right to correct her boyfriend's children. Uh, well, it depends if they're under the same roof. Then, I, yeah, yeah, I wouldn't. I don't think it's as clear cut as yeah. that because she does have a right to be treated respectfully yeah. in her own home. She does have a right to be spoken to with yes. respect. Yeah. So that is her right. As a step parent in Ireland, we don't have many Irish based resources to mm. rely on. Step parents naturally aren't allowed to talk openly about children that aren't their own. So setting up a support group, etc., can be very tricky. Be aware that your approach to teens will have to be very different to the eight year old. Keeping quiet is often the best policy. Uh, uh, says a stepmom. Well, that is, I believe that's yeah. true because Ireland's yeah. too small a country, so people 
can't don't even have online forums in Ireland no, absolutely. about uh, yeah. uh, that kind of thing. I have uh, nine-year-old daughters, uh, twin nine-year-old daughters. I try to encourage them to get on, but I find their competitiveness quite challenging. They are involved in a lot of similar activities like swimming and dancing and drama, but I find they are always trying to outdo each other and it can get a bit nasty with comments and remarks. They both want to be the first to present me with a medal, etc. I'm all for healthy competition uh, and like to emphasise their similarities, but I don't know if they are acting this way to distinguish themselves more from the other twin, or is it just a plea for more singular attention? How should I deal with this? Mm, tricky, and I think when it comes to twins, it's really interesting because people, other people, I'm not saying pe- these parents, but other people generally or often will feel compelled to compare them. Oh, that one's this and that one's that and that's the quiet one and this is the competitive one or whatever it might be. And if, if other people keep comparing them, it would stand to reason they'll start to compare each other and therefore compete with each other. And I would always say avoid labels with twins like the quiet one, the studious one, the, because they will live up to that and it just creates that division. Um, and of course, children want and need individualized time and focus within families and often twins are treated as a unit. Yeah, rather than yeah. as two individuals, you know, even siblings in close in age are are apart and different. But twins are often about the twins as a yeah, unit. Yeah. So it can be very difficult for them to, to get that individualized focus. So I would wonder if you could even day on, day off with each of them, do a walk and talk, you know, get outside, because if you try and do it at home, the other one will encroach on whichever one is getting the Mm. time with you because out of habit, if nothing else. But getting out of the house for a walk and talk one on one with each of them every other night and alternating that even 20 minutes, like just getting out and going for a quick walk and back again, just really gives you that chance to check in and they get gotten and they get your full focus. I think when it comes to, you know, you're saying here competition is healthy. Absolutely. Collaboration is healthier, okay, Um, (laughs) than the competitive side. So it's effort over outcome. And I'm wondering about when we think of the individualized uh, individualization here, do they enjoy the activities they're doing? Like you say, they do these activities and they're very focused on which of them is better or winning or just beating each other. In other words, their focus isn't on what they're doing, but on what the other one is doing. Yeah. And how they're doing it. So I wonder, do both of them enjoy the activities or is it actually allowing them? I don't really care about this activity, so I focus solely on the competition. And I wonder, might it be useful to explore one separate activity each? And I say one because, you know, when you're trying to get children to multiple activities in different places at the same time, like we all know what that's like. (laughs) So, you know, if you can find one activity that is each of theirs alone, that's also promoting a space that is theirs. So you're talking about unique versus unit, really, mm. the individual versus unit. And I think that could be helpful. And I also think collaborative play at home, getting them to work together to achieve something. And it could be, you know, that you take the masking tape and you make a track on your floor, um, you know, just and again at their age, because they're nine and they're competitive, you could make the track wide, narrow, it, you know, have it move in out just with your masking tape cotton ball on one end and the other one is at the other the other uh, child is at the other end and they have to blow it up but being careful to keep it in the lines if it comes out you have to go back to the start and start so they have to encourage each other because I don't get my go until you yeah, finish yeah. yours and finish it well mm. so I'm going to work together you could have them work you know have a cotton ball snowball fight and throw cotton balls at each other release some of that competitive energy but then they have to take a, a shoe and sock off each and hop around the floor and pick up the cotton balls with their toes one by one and tidy up for you but they have to work together to do that mm. so you're having them play and be active in a collaborative way 
and that should take some of the edge off the competitive piece. And this, again, I don't want to make it sound like, you know, competition is bad for kids. It's not. But over competition is certainly not healthy. They need to have that collaborative piece. It's why team sports are so good for kids, because they collaborate on a team, but compete between mm. teams. If uh, they're in the same class mm. in school, is there an argument for splitting them up? I think, we, you know, and I think we've been asked that recently enough as mm. well. But, you know, there is and there isn't because, you know, it really depends on the children. Like sometimes, well, sometimes it's not an option. You might be in a school yeah, with that's one true. class. That's true. Um, yeah. But sometimes they want to be together because they're each other's friend and support and it's not an issue. So I always think that should be something that isn't just a blanket policy we don't put twins in the same class. I do think that should be negotiated case by case with parents involved. And if that was an option and this parent is saying that would really help, go to your school and talk about that. Mm. But otherwise, it's going to be things that you do at home, but it's to spotlight, you know, things they have in common and things they have apart and that they're both different, individual and special in their own right. So they don't have to compete to be seen as a person in their own right, the one who's best. I have a five-year-old daughter who generally is very well behaved, but she's constantly out of bed in the middle of the night and decides to climb into bed right between me and my husband. At first, we let her, as it seemed easier to not argue. (laughs) As we made your first mistake, but she's become so accustomed to it that it's become too much of a regular occurrence for my liking. She'll go down to her own bed, all right, but within minutes or hours, she's over to our room again. We're getting minimal sleep because she's disrupting us and I haven't the heart to lock our door or anything. But how do I firmly tell her it's time to go back to her own bed? I think you have to start by saying you got it wrong because you actually (laughs) let her do it. So you've given her the message. It is okay. So actually, in her mind, you're the one changing the rules. You're the one who's changed, Mm. not her. (laughs) So I think you go back and say, you know, I made a I made a mistake. You know, I, I made it. I made you think it was okay to do this. And actually, you know, I do love having cuddles with you. But when there's three of us in the bed all night, I'm not sleeping so well and I'm so tired in the morning and that makes me a bit cranky. So I'm wondering, could you stay in your own bed and you could come in when the sun is up, when it's bright? A grow clock can be helpful coming into these dark mornings, by the way, because the clock tells you Mm. if the hand is in day or night. Um, And when it's in the daytime, you can come in and we'll have our cuddles then. And it's not like she's going to high five you and say, super idea. You know, (laughs) why didn't I think of that? She may do the, uh, I've heard this (laughs) argument before. How come you guys get to sleep in the same bed, but I have to sleep by myself? I'm lonely. And that's the, we'll get you a teddy and yeah. look, we can see and we'll check on you. And yeah, that's hard. That's confusing. Yeah. Just name it. It doesn't mean you have to explain everything. <laughs> you can say, yeah, that is confusing. It must feel like that for you. And full stop. Yes. That's as far yes. as you go with that. Yeah, here's a violin. But it's also, yeah. it's, what I don't want is one of you getting out of the bed so that she mm. then takes that yeah. place because that yeah. is a slippery soap. But I will say, Sean, that your child coming into your bed to sleep with you is only a problem if it is a problem for you. So, you know, there can be this kind of idea that children shouldn't do this. Like if you're thinking my child gets in and we all sleep great and the bed is big enough and this is how we get a night's sleep. Great. Mm. There's no way. I have no issue with that. They won't be in your bed at 14. You know, still only five. They're only little. I'm also thinking there must have been change for this little one recently, either starting school or transitioning into senior infants. And if they were going into senior infants, that group of kids, we have to keep an eye on as well because their junior infant experience was really fragmented. Mm. So their going back to school year two is still an extended year one emotional experience. So just be aware of when did this start and does it correlate with, hey, the world is opening up, you're back at your swimming and your football and your school and woohoo, and we said it's great and 
little ones are going, actually, no, I quite liked when it was just us in the little yeah. world. So let me climb in between you and re-experience it just being us in the world. And I feel safe and contained with it. So I, I would certainly talk to her about it, but I would be looking at is, is she looking for is a comfort seeking or is it just habit formation? We've mentioned habits twice just to say if kids can develop bad habits, rest assured they can develop good ones too because they yeah. have the capacity for habit formation. So it's about finding a new pattern of behaviour and sticking with that calmly, consistently. Again, they're not going to say night one, 10 hours <laughs> in my own bed. Got it. Um, so you have to be really patient with this. But I think start by going, I made a mistake. Yeah. I really need my own bed back. Yeah. You know? <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> let's negotiate. And it might take a while. I think it will. Joanna, yes. <laughs> thanks a million as ever. Joanna Fortune you. there. You are listening to The Moncrief Show on Newstalk. We're going to take a break. After that is James Bond, a psychopath. Moncrief on News Talk. Brought to you by Avant Money. Think you're getting the best value from your bank? Think again.